Good morning, everyone. I'm reminded of when I was standing on the southern steps of the Temple Mount, uh, looking out um, from that vantage point and seeing the mountains that surround Jerusalem. And uh, to be able to see that is pretty special. And I know we do have a trip planned in April to go, and there's 38 people from this church that are signed up to go to Israel, and we'll just wait and see what the Lord does. And, uh, and, and I say what the Lord does because he is the one that is in total control. Uh, it reminds me of Psalm 125 as I stood there and I saw those mountains. It says here, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with the evildoers. And then it says this, peace be upon Israel. And so that's our prayer. And, uh, and it is true that we are in the book of Hebrews. What a special uh, time to be in. Um, you know, we're, we just talked about the Day of Atonement. Uh, the attack that happened on Israel this weekend was 50 years after uh, the war uh, of Yom Kippur. And so this is a significant time and significant moment, but we also know that there's eternal purposes going on. Even right now, as we've gathered in this room, uh, we want to talk about eternal things. So let's open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. You know, it was really great having Pastor Tommy here last week with, the, with us, wasn't it? Pretty awesome guy. Um, I don't know if I could do the moonwalk like he does, you know, so. Um, but it was awesome to be able to celebrate three years as a church. It's been an incredible three years so far and so many more to come. But I remember in the first year of this church, we studied through the entire gospel of Mark and it felt like we were in that book forever, you know. And you might be at the point now with the book of Hebrews where you're beginning to think, when are we going to finish this book? Um, well, we are set to finish the book of Hebrews in January, but there's still so many truths for us to unpack in this letter, and we're not even in chapter 11 yet. Just wait till we get to chapter 11. But we're in chapter 10 this morning, so with your Bibles open, as we come into this chapter, I just want to be straightforward and say this, that things might start sounding a little bit repetitive. You know, ever since we started Hebrews chapter 7, which was five Sundays ago, we have been looking at this consistent theme that Jesus is our high priest and that he is better. Jesus is just simply greater, superior, far better than anything else there is. So his priesthood is better, his sacrifice is better, his covenant, his blood, his death, and all the rest are so much better than what was provided in the old covenants, what we would call the law. And so in summary, if I could just sort of give you a sense of what we've been looking at, is that Jesus has brought about a new in better way for us to draw near to God. That's the whole plan and purpose of God is that we would draw near to him 
And Jesus has brought about a new and better way for us to do that. And the writer has painstakingly sought to convince us of that reality. And so today, the question for each one of us as we've come in here today is to ask ourselves, am I convinced of that reality? The reality being Jesus Christ, knowing who he is and knowing what he has done for me so that I can draw near to God. You will hear so often said around these parts, bring the real you to the real Jesus. And Jesus is the reality. He is the most true thing you will ever encounter in this life. And so are you living out that reality of what it looks like to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Because every single Sunday when I stand in this pulpit, I really have two main goals. It's no secret here, two main goals that I have. Number one, I want to equip the saints with the truth of God's word. I want to speak God's truth to every believer in Jesus Christ, whether young or old, new in the faith, seasoned in the faith, so that together we can hold on to this reality of who Jesus is until the end. And the end, of course, being either when you die, which is going to happen to every single one of us, if you aren't aware of that, 100% guarantee one out of every one person will die. Newsflash. It's either going to happen when you die or it's going to happen when Jesus comes again. And don't forget about that reality. You know, the reality that we're all going to die might be a more present reality, but do you realize there's an even more true reality that Jesus Christ promised that he would come again? So whichever happens first... I want to equip you to the very end that you would hold firm to Jesus. Secondly, I have the goal and the aim every time I stand in this pulpit to speak to those who have not yet come to Jesus Christ for eternal salvation. Hebrews chapter 9, right at the end of the section we read last week, says, It is appointed for every person to die once, and then comes judgment. But I have good news to share which is that Jesus is more than able to save you and I from the judgment that our sin deserves. Jesus has offered himself once and for all as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of many. And so if you put your faith, your hope, your trust in Jesus, you will forever be redeemed by God's grace. You will be spared from the judgment of God that is coming upon the ungodly. And that's going to take place at the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. And so this is my aim, that before I die or before Jesus Christ comes again, which that would be quite wonderful if he came again while I was standing in this pulpit, uh, Lord Jesus, come, wouldn't mind that to happen today. But until either one of those things, I'm going to make it my goal to give as many people the opportunity to come into the relationship with God that that comes only through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. 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 So simply, uh, the goal is to have the saints equipped and the sinners saved. And there's only one way to do both. You realize that, right? There's only one way to see saints equipped and sinners saved, and that is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so please allow me the opportunity this morning on this beautiful Sunday to once again preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you ready for that? All right. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's read the whole text from verse 1 to verse 18, and then we'll dive right into it. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to offer, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins." But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you as that single offering for sin that has taken away our sins once and for all when you died upon a cross. But thank you, Jesus, that you did not stay on that cross, but you were taken down and laid in a tomb, and then three days later, you rose from the dead. And Jesus, we thank you that you have ascended back to heaven and you are seated right now in the heavenly places and we are seated with you, Jesus. And I thank you, God, that from your heavenly throne, you are waiting until you make all your enemies your footstool. But until that day, you do not want enemies. You want friends. You want children. And I pray that today, in your patience in your long-suffering, in your mercy, and in your grace, you would draw enemies to become children. That today you would save the sinners and that you would equip the saints. Do that work by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. All right, so verse 1 says this. 
For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year, uh, year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, verse 1, the writer is just continuing to make a case for why Jesus has made a superior sacrifice. He's addressing, right, the shortcomings of the law, the sacrifices that were also associated with it, saying that the law was but a shadow of the good things that are to come. So Jesus, we understand, is the true form of the reality. And so he's saying, why are you looking to the shadows when you have the true form? When you've got the real thing in front of you, why would you still go back to look to shadows? You know, how strange would it be if you and I were having a conversation, and instead of talking to you face-to-face, I was talking to your shadow? That would just be very awkward and strange. Or, or sometimes, you know, during my kids' bedtimes, I will make shadow puppets on their bedroom wall. You guys all know what I'm talking about, right? You've either been a parent or a kid where you, you know, do a little bird on the wall, and your kids see it, and... Could you imagine if after making shadows on the wall, my children said good night to the shadows? And they said, I love you, shadow. Rather than good night, dad, love you, see you tomorrow. No, my, my kids know that the shadows are merely being cast from the reality, which is their father's hands. And it is these hands that can tuck my children into bed. It's these hands that can uh, hold my kids and kiss them and tell them good night and say, I love you, and they can say, I love you back to me. We have a relationship. You can't have a relationship with a shadow. If you do, you're, you need some help. <laughs> okay? <laughs> okay. Let me give you one more illustration to help get this truth across. When, when my children, I'm using my kids as analogies today, right? When my kids were still in the womb, we got to see them by ultrasound. And every parent loves to get an ultrasound, right? Because what it does is it, it builds this wonderful expectation of what is to come. Something good is coming. You're about to have the birth of your child, now, could you imagine if on the day came when my wife delivered one of my children, that the baby came and was crying and, and being held and being kissed and, oh, so wonderful to meet you. I love you. You are my son. You are my daughter. Could you imagine if when my child finally arrived, I was there in the corner still clutching on to an ultrasound? Oh, my little baby, I love you so much. Right? You wouldn't do that because the reality has come. So why would you look to shadows? Why would you look to pictures? Why would you look to types rather than just looking to the reality? So this is especially true with the sacrificial system of the old covenant. That's what it amounted to. It was just a shadow, a puppet, an ultrasound of the true reality to come. And the reality is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, has come. 
In real time, in real space, he came to be a perfect sacrifice. And so the sacrifices of the law, which were always insufficient shadows that had to be repeated year after year, they could never make perfect those who wanted to draw near to God. The shadows, the copies, the images of the law, what were they meant for? They were meant to tell us something good is coming. Something better is coming, and that is Jesus. And so Jesus is the final reality. He is the true form of everything that is revealed in the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the good things that God has promised in his word. And we know that because Jesus has come, that we have had such profound revelation here in these last days. There should be no question in any person's heart as to what God's real plan is and that that plan comes through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So verses 2 and 3 says, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered... Speaking of the sacrifices, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is but a reminder of sins year after year. So had the sacrificial system in the Old Covenant, you know, the sacrificing of all these various types of animals, had that been sort of the end-all, be-all, then then it should have been able to cleanse the conscience, consciousness, I always have trouble with that word, consciousness of the worshiper. You know what I'm talking about? The, con, the conscience or the consciousness of the worshiper, that thing inside you that says when you come to God, can I come to you, God? Can I approach you? Can I draw near to you? Am I worthy? Am I accepted? Am I loved? Can I come? That's what he's talking about. And animal sacrifices could never do that for the worshiper in the Old Covenant. Year after year, they were simply reminded, oh, God is holy and I am not. So the Hebrew knew that offerings had to be made day after day, year after year. If they had any shot at drawing near to God, maybe once a year at best, could they really draw near? And so had the Israelite worshipers been cleansed, wouldn't sacrifices have ceased? But the Jews never stopped offering sacrifices, and why is that? Well, verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Just, Just read that one more time. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the question's like, well, then why do they offer so many animal sacrifices? How come year after year on the Day of Atonement, large animal sacrifices would be made in the temple or the tabernacle, but every single year those sacrifices could never take away sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins? Well, well then why in the world did the Jews offer up so many of those animal sacrifices? Well, it's because the blood of animals, such as bulls and goats and lambs and various kinds of offerings, they did atone for sin for a time. And so the question is, well, well, isn't atonement for sin the same thing as sins being taken away? Not quite. 
See, to atone means to cover over. Sin would be covered over with animal blood, and God would look past the sin, but that covering was never meant to be permanent. It could never take away sin. That's why sacrifices were made continually, because they were never fully sufficient. And I'm just looking out at a bunch of Gentile faces being like, why are you talking about animal blood right now, right? Well, to the Jewish mind here, this would have been profound. And this is what we're talking about a little when we say that we're praying for Israel, because we're just a bunch of Gentiles that have been grafted into God's great plan of redemption for the Jews. And so for them, animal sacrifices was very relevant, but we have the greater reality, Jesus Christ, who himself has been the sacrifice. Amen? Amen. Look, that's why it was so powerful and profound when John the Baptist saw Jesus walking along the banks of the Jordan River, and he pointed, and he, all those disciples, he said, he said to them, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, Jesus did atone for sin, but because his blood was perfect, because he never once sinned, he was not only able to atone, he wasn't only able to cover over sin. Do you know what he was able to do? He was able to take away sin. And that is something so much better, so much greater. Sin has been removed once and for all for those who have believed in Jesus' sacrifice. And in order to prove this reality, the writer of Hebrews is now going to use the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, to show that this was God's plan all along. And God spoke prophetically about the coming of the Jewish Messiah, the Christ, to the Gentiles many times in the Hebrew Bible, one of those places being Psalm chapter 40, verse 6 through 8, which is now quoted within this chapter. Look at verse 5. It says, quoting from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Wow. Look, the words used there to introduce this quotation we just read from Psalm chapter 40 are so powerful. Did you see where he says, consequently? As a result of what we've just spoken about, look at what it says. When Christ came into the world. The maker of all things. The one for whom and by whom and to whom are all things. Christ, the Son of God, chose to come into this world. And how did he come? He came as a baby, a humble child that was born of a virgin. The God of the universe became a living being. He became a human. He who has no beginning and has no end came into this world beginning his human life in the womb 
of a virgin named Mary. You know, had there been ultrasounds at the time, Jesus at one time would have looked like this. I mean, seriously, have you considered that? The God who made you and me and fashioned us in our mother's womb fearfully and wonderfully made you. He chose to become one of these, a fetus inside of the womb of a woman, miraculously conceived because he had no human father. God is his father. That's why it's the virgin birth. But the very simple fact that the God who made you and me became one of these. How profound. Teaches us the value of a single human life, especially the value of an unborn life, if we might say. But once Jesus was born, born in that little town of Bethlehem, the city of David, he lived the same kind of life that you and I lived, yet without sin. He would have laughed at the shadow puppets that Joseph, his sort of adoptive father, would have made on the bedroom wall. Perhaps Jesus even seeing the shadows that his, his earthly father would cast upon a wall. What if one evening there was the shadow of a little lamb? And Jesus would have thought that one day soon he would do the will of his father in heaven and die as a sacrificial lamb that was decidedly slain before the foundations of the earth. Think about how many sheep or goats or bulls that Jesus saw in his day as he walked about Israel and thinking sacrifices and offerings, Father, you have not desire, but a body you have given to me that I might do your will. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. That is a prophetic picture of what Jesus would become, quoted all the way back in Psalm chapter 40. But all throughout the Old Testament, we see that God was not looking for sacrifices. God has always simply been looking for love and obedience from the heart. He's looking for a relationship with you. So let's just go through the scriptures for a little bit and see that God really does say in his word, he's not looking for sacrifices and offerings from you. Psalm chapter 51, this was written by King David after he had committed the sin of both adultery and murder. He wrote these words in Psalm 51, verse 16 through 17, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Samuel, the prophet, spoke these words to King Saul after Saul had tried to be a priest himself, even though he was a king. Only Jesus can be both a priest and a king. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Or listen to what God said to Israel through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 1, verse 11. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? 
I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls and of lambs and of goats. Again, God said to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 7, verse 22 to 23, For in that day I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way I command you, that it may be well with you. Also in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, God says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Or how about Amos chapter 5, verse 21 to 24? I, I think you guys are getting the point that God's not looking for offerings and sacrifices, right? Okay, let's just read this, this last one and just to really get the point across. God says, I hate... I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream." Actually, how about one more, just to really make the point clear, <clears throat> that God has never looked for offerings and sacrifices from his people. He simply wants to be the God of his people, and he will provide the sacrifice. Micah chapter 6, verse 6 through 8, the last prophetic book to Israel says this, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Ooh, God did that with his son. The fruit of my, of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And that is why when Jesus came into this world to take away sin once and for all, being the perfect sacrifice that God received, he knew that those words from Psalm chapter 40, quoted there in verse 5 through 7, were speaking of him. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. All throughout this book, from the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation, the law, the wisdom, the prophets, the gospels, the epistles, the revelation of John, all of it from beginning to end, we see man's utter inability to obey God. And the law and the prophets are there to show us that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. 
we see that God, being a just God, demands payment for sin because the wages of sin is death. We see that the death of animals through animal sacrifices was never sufficient to take away the guilt and the stain of sin. It could cover over it for a period of time, but it could never remove it. We see that there is a need continually for a redeemer who can save humanity once and for all from our sin. And we see that God is the only one who can do that. No man can save himself. Only God can save. And therefore, God sent forth his only begotten son into this world that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And when you cry out to him, when you call upon the name of Jesus or he calls upon you, you pick up the phone, you answer, and you say, I need you, Jesus. Psalm chapter 40, verse 6 through 8 is a prophetic conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And Jesus knew all along that the Father was just looking to have relationship. Jesus knew all along that man and woman the purpose of their creation was to live in communion with God, to do the will of God. And God's will for Adam and Eve was apparent. It was clear. God spoke to them what they ought to do, and yet they failed to do it. And therefore, sin entered the world, and sin has spread to all mankind. And every single last one of us has failed to do the will of God. Instead, we continually choose to do our own will. I don't think I need to convince anyone of that reality that you would rather do what you want to do than what God wants you to do. But Jesus, the second Adam, the seed of the woman, came into the world to redeem us with his perfect blood because he always did the will of his Father in heaven. Even as Jesus, one of the most beautiful pictures of this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his arrest and betrayal and crucifixion. Jesus was sweating what were like great drops of blood. And do you remember his prayer? He said, my father, let this cup pass from me. He knew what was coming upon him, which was the wrath of God towards sin that would be laid upon Jesus at the cross and that he would bear in his body all of the sins of the world and pay for it. And so he said, let this cup pass from me. But do you remember what he said after that? Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. And it was the will of God to crush his son for you and I. Jesus always did the will of the Father. Always in perfect obedience to God's will, the Son lived out his perfect life, and therefore he is qualified to be the perfect sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of this book. Guys, this entire book is about Jesus. The reason we read it, the reason we teach it, the reason we believe all of it is because it testifies to the greatest reality that this world has ever known, that Jesus is our God and Savior. And so to not see Jesus in this book is to miss what this entire book is all about that he would open the eyes of the Jews and the Gentiles to see Jesus as the one and only Savior.
That includes Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8 and 9, which is scripture, and it says this, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Do you realize that the Bible, the the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, has 300 plus prophecies about Jesus being the Messiah, being the Christ. And so we can conclude with just absolute certainty. It's not hard to see from Psalm 40 that that's talking about Jesus. But 300 plus prophecies about Jesus. Do you know that there's also twice as many prophecies about Jesus' second coming as there is his first coming? which tells you you should be doubly aware and doubly confident that Jesus is coming again if you already believe that he's come once. And in that span of time, from the first coming to the second coming, this is what Hebrews started out by saying, that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. We're living in the last days. The last days were the time when the writer of Hebrews wrote this letter, and approximately 2,000 years later, it's still the last days. But let me tell you this, it's more the last days today than it was then. (laughs) So could Jesus come back in our lifetime? Absolutely. We believe in an imminent return of Jesus Christ. He can come at any moment, and things don't have to be going on in Israel for him to come back, <laughs> but, but when things are going on in Israel, saints, look up. Just be ready. Be watching. Be sober. Be alert. Because our Savior will come, and he will redeem those who have put their trust in him, and he will judge those who have refused to believe in him. Jesus said he's the only way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. God has done away with the first in order to establish the second. And so everyone who believes in that first covenant must also believe in the second covenant that Jesus made because it's a better covenant. It's a covenant that was inaugurated when the Son of God was crucified for the sins of the world. So in verse 10, it says, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. See, because of what Jesus Christ has done for me, I have been sanctified. I've been set apart by God for his useful purposes. And the will of God for my life was all made possible when Jesus took up a body and perfectly obeyed God on my behalf because I've never been able to do it myself. In Jesus Christ, I am at the center of God's perfect will for me. And verse 11 says, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The interesting thing about this is when this was first written, the temple in Jerusalem still stood. And I think that there were probably priests still offering sacrifices. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, why would you go back to that? Why would you turn to that old way? There is a new and better way in Jesus Christ. So what can wash away my sins? 
Nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood. You know, sacrifices and offerings God does not desire for you. Standing in a room, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices Sunday after Sunday isn't what brings you to God. Do we think it's Bible studies that we attend that will bring us to God? Do we think that it's the songs we sing that will bring us to God? Do we think it's the tithes that we give that will bring us to God? Do we think it's anything of, of some sort of sacrifice, some sort of offering that, you know, if I just sacrifice two hours on my weekend, I can have a clear conscience of sin, knowing that if I go back another Sunday the following week for two hours, then my conscience will be cleansed again? It, it's not church. It's not songs, it's not tithes, it's not any kind of offering that you can give to God that's going to cleanse your conscience of worship. Do you want to know, brothers and sisters, and those who don't know Jesus yet, the only thing that can cleanse your conscience from sin is the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So for us to put our trust or our hope or our faith in anything besides Christ and his sacrifice and his blood alone that covers, and not only covers, but takes away our sins, we, we can't look to anywhere else. So verse 12 through 13, it says, but when Christ offered, past tense, he's already done the work, for all time, future tense, it's a work done in the past that will be good for all time. A single sacrifice for sins. He sat down. The work is finished at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet, which is at the second coming of Jesus. So for me, the reality stands so clear before my eyes today that Jesus is the Christ the only one in whom I can come in order to draw near to God. And so as I pray right now, I'm going to invite the worship team up, and I'm going to read our last couple of verses as we enter into a time of worship because we're going to talk about the wonderful work of salvation that Jesus has accomplished for us. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would speak right now Holy Spirit, you would draw us right now, that we would be able to approach our Heavenly Father and come into a relationship with you right now. Every single person in this room would not leave here today without knowing that Jesus has cleansed their conscience of sin and has given them new life so that we can boldly and confidently draw near to the throne of grace. Amen. Amen. You know, all throughout this text that we've read today, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been mentioned. The Holy Spirit is mentioned here in our last verses where he speaks the promise of the new covenant. He says in verse 18, for by a single, or 14 to 18, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. We've already talked about what an amazing promise that is. Verse 18 says, for where there is forgiveness of these there is no longer any offering for sin. 
There's no longer any offering for sin. There's, there's nothing that you need to do, no work that you need to do to draw near to God. The way we draw near to God is we draw near to God by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. This is a gift to be received. Nothing you can earn can get you here, but simply believing and receiving who Jesus is, believing and receiving what he's done for you, this allows you to draw near to God. Jesus, by his blood, has made you perfect. You're perfect in God's sight. And you might have an objection to that this morning. And this question may have been in your heart this entire morning, which is, if I've been perfected by the blood of Jesus Christ, then why do I still sin? Great question. And it's because salvation comes to us at once in three ways. When you believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the Christ, the Savior of the world, salvation will come to you at once, but it comes to you in three ways. Past, present, and future. See, salvation is spoken of in these three ways in Scripture, where we are justified, sanctified, and glorified. To be, uh, to be justified means that I have been saved from the penalty of sin. To be sanctified means that I am being saved from the power of sin. And to be glorified means that I will be saved from the presence of sin. So my past, my present, and my future has been saved and sealed by Jesus Christ in his blood. So when God looks at me, he sees perfection. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been given to me. Not only has he taken away my sins, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ has covered me. And the way God sees me is he sees me holy in his sight. Can you think of any better offer? I can't think of any better offer, and so I want to extend that offer to you today. That you would know that your sins have been paid in full and that God has accepted you because he's accepted the sacrifice of his son once and for all. And so this is the words that God's speaking to you right now. God's saying to you, come into a relationship with me. I don't need anything from you. I just want you. God is saying, there is no offering, no sacrifice that I desire. He's saying, draw near to me, not because of what you have done, because of what my son has done. God is saying, I will put my laws on your heart and I will write them on your mind. God is saying, I will remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more. And so if there's anyone here today who would want to receive such a wonderful gift of salvation, I'm just gonna ask you to do something very simple and that would be to stand to your feet and say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I want you. Is there anyone here today who would like to do that? Just right where you are, with boldness and confidence, knowing who God can make you to be, that'll save you right now. 
It's not because you've stood to your feet. It's just simply because you're acknowledging Jesus. And Jesus says, if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father who is in heaven. He says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. So it's a simple act of faith saying, I believe and I want to receive what Jesus has done for me. Is there anyone here this morning, just right where you are, if standing is too much, just raise your hand. Let's all stand then, because we all need salvation. Amen. Lord Jesus, I thank you that the ground is level at the cross, and that we all stand before you, not one person any greater than the next, but we look to the greatness of Jesus, the Savior of the world, who by a single sacrifice paid for sin once and for all. How can we say thank you enough? But simply right now, Lord, we just say thank you, and we worship you in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen.